Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Wei-Yen Tan. We're at Elk Cove Vineyards in Gaston. It's February 24th, 2022. Wei-Yen, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Uh, the first question, because this is a wine archive interview, is why wine? Why wine? So my wine journey when I was, began when I was six years old. It's a little bit younger than most people, I will admit. But um, my uncle, for his retirement, he actually bought a vineyard in Bordeaux in France. And so, um, so you know, during the summers, I would go over. I'm pretty sure I tasted wine when I was six, seven, eight. Did not quite like it at that age, thank goodness. Um, but um, yeah, so and then I was free labor for him. So I ended up, you know, doing all sorts of things like harvest and uh, sweeping the floors, you know, helping him as he stumbled across the cellar, that kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, so that's how that that's um, so that's why wine. I love it. I love wine. Um, I love the different expressions of it. I love. Um, French wines. I love Oregon interpretations of French wines, um, and so that's really how that all started. Tell me about your sort of wine education. How did you learn more about wines and winemaking and all all of that, kind mm -hmm. of, all that kind of stuff? So it really just began with my uncle because he was kind of learning a lot of it himself. He knew the basics, um, and he had you know taken all his like psalm exams and things like that, um, and so he taught me a lot of you know how wine tasted. Um, but then when we were in France, you know, he had a, you know, a cellar master, he had, you know, a director at Harvest, he had, you know, um, a lot of very knowledgeable people at the winery. And so they kind of, you know, I would just kind of follow them along and, you know, I learned French and then also learned like what, you know, what mm -hmm. they were doing with the wines. Um, so my education kind of started there. I did a bunch of different harvests in France. Um, and then after that, I also did all my SOM exams, but decided not to go the grower route, although that might happen in the future. <laughs> um, so, um, and yeah, and I kind of landed here in Oregon because, there, you know, I, I do love Bordeaux wines, um, but I also am very, very partial to Burgundies, mm -hmm. um, as many people are. And so that's, you know, so when I um, tasted my first Oregonian wine, um, the Pinot, um, I, I was just kind of, I fell in love. And so, <laughs> so that's uh, that's one of the reasons why you know this like meeting of France with Oregon, like Oregon meets France, um, different expressions of the Pinot, and more beautiful in some ways. So let's back up a little bit and tell me about a little bit. You mentioned uh, obviously spending time in France as, as a youth. Uh, tell me about uh, upbringing. Where were you born and raised, and sort of your educational I was, path? Well, I was born in Singapore, um, and that if um, so, we as you know, like the Willamette Valley is the forty-fifth parallel. It's on the you know, and so Singapore is one degree north of the equator. So there's not a whole lot of wine being grown there. It's also <laughs> an island where the average square foot is going to be you know millions of dollars. In like, so there's no wine grown there, and so um, you know. So I, so I grew up in a big metropolis, a big city. It's the only um, island city country state in the world. Um, it's like six million people crammed into the size of San Francisco, eight by eight miles. Um, and so that's you know modern population of Oregon in like this tiny little area. So, um, so going to France and just you know kind of looking at all the you know that open space. I mean, it is a pretty crowded country as well, France is. <laughs> but but the, the vineyards and everything just kind of just kind of takes your breath away sometimes and you, and you go back into Singapore it's just like person piled up on person so <laughs> but yeah that's where I grew up mm -hmm. and that's where I did most of my education until I came to the U.S. for my undergrad my master's and my PhDs. Tell us about that your educational path why did you choose the path you did? I didn't want to go so I did my I said do my PhD because I didn't want to start working um <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good well okay. I did what most Singaporeans do, which is when you go to college you are going to do something that's gonna you know make you money when you graduate from it. So wine making was not the immediate path for me at that time. And so I you know, I started out at my undergrad in math and stats and comparative literature and French literature. Um, and then 
you know, continued with a master's and then, you know, finished up a PhD. And again, I didn't want to work. And that's why <laughs> I, didn't, you know, I just wanted to keep in that whole collegial kind of mm -hmm. feeling. And then when I, when I was doing my PhD, I realized that, oh my goodness, I actually have to work while I'm doing my PhD. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so that really sucked. <laughs> but, but I do attribute the, the reason how I, how I discovered Argonian wines was actually when I was doing my PhD. One of my professors, um, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, you know, we had like, um, like an evening out or whatever. Or, no, it was actually, uh, yeah, all of us went out and then we went back to his, um, to his house with all his graduate students. Um, and, um, and he opened a bottle and it was actually um, Alcove, which is why I wanted to like, try and get to Alcove. And he had a few other Oregonian wines as well and then a bunch of French ones. And then he's like, these are really great. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, these are really great. <laughs> and so that's kind of how that started. Um, but yeah, I just didn't, um, you know, and, I, and then at the same time, during that whole period of my life, I was doing so many different things, I couldn't really figure out, you know, which direction to go as well, you know, because I was flying, I, was, I had become a flight instructor, um, I thought that was going to become like some kind of, you know, airline pilot or something, maybe, possibly, you know, um, I was not attending classes sometimes because I was out flying and instructing, you know, <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it was kind of a very storied kind of... <laughs> patchwork kind of education I think um, and so yeah and I'm starting to actually right now um, go back to things that I really really love because um, you know I the, what happened the pandemic the past two years I'm not sure it just kind of crystallized in me what I like doing and the things I really really love versus um, things that I have been doing because it's what you're supposed to do mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's a big thing too you mentioned flying, obviously something that you're very passionate about as well. Tell mm -hmm. us about how that came to be. Um, so my flying journey started a little bit later than my wine journey. <laughs> I was actually, so in Singapore, it's not very common for people to learn how to fly. Um, it's not a very big country, first of all. And so you don't have like a lot of space where you can just, you know, take an airplane and fly over fields or whatever as you can here. Um, there's maybe one flying club, or at that time there was only one flying club or a flying school for people who are not going to the military or the airlines. Um, and at that time, it was also very male-dominated. It still is. Um, and even in the US, it's very male-dominated. You know, mm -hmm. But in Singapore, I think there was no female um, pilot um, in the military or in um, the airlines at that time. And so it just never really occurred to me that it was possible. But I always liked, you know, I always liked the idea of like, you know, Star Wars and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and then I came to the U.S. and I was just kind of biking around somewhere, and then I biked past an airport, um, and it had this sign that said "Learn to Fly Here." And I was just like, oh, they they got to be kidding me, right? And so <laughs> I I went in and then talked to the guy, and then he said like, and I asked, do you have to need to have perfect eyesight? Do you need to like blah blah? Because I, you know, I have contacts in right now, and so I wear glasses. And he's like, no, not at all. You can learn to fly here. I was like, how much is it? Is it like $50 million? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it turned out to be, he's like, oh, you can do a discovery flight for $70, dollars $75. I was like, I could maybe do that. <laughs> you know? like, it took a while. But yeah, I didn't have enough money because um, I, you know, I was an undergrad at the time. And so I was just basically, I got one lesson a month or something trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to get my license. Um, and so I got my private pilot's license after a while. And then all my ratings and got my commercial license and got my instructor's license and started teaching and building time so how long did that take that takes a long time yeah it took a while yeah <laughs> took like six years okay. um before i got my instructor's license i started in 1998 so yeah not 99 actually i don't know it all blends in now <laughs> self a blur you mentioned you thought you might, you might become like an airline pilot or something like that. Why, why did you go into the instructor instructor's license and what did you do with that once you had it? Oh, so there. So I I do love teaching. Um, it's you know I, because it shows that I know more than the other person. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it's not. <laughs> but, um, um, in most um, airline pilots and um, commercial pilots actually get um, the instructor's license and that's how you build time. Mm -hmm. So um, so if you know. Because you can't just you know apply to the airlines once you get your first license. You have, you'd have to look at your number of hours, mm -hmm. um, and then to get an airline transport license, you need fifteen hundred hours anyway. And so instead of flying around yourself, paying for the plane yourself, um, you you know have a student and you're teaching the student, and so you're really improving your skills. But then they're paying for the plane, and they're paying you as well. So it's a so that's kind of like a standard route. So that mm -hmm. wasn't something I you know brilliantly decided <laughs> to do. <laughs> That's kind of what, what most people are doing. And then I just decided I did not want to apply. I, to, I did not want to go to the airlines after. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
you mentioned you were doing a lot of things. Tell me about some of the other kind of careers you've had, other, other things you've done in, in, aside from flying and wine. Um, yeah, a lot of rent. So it's, uh, I think they like building things. Um, and in the sense of Korean work, um, it kind of, you know, it started out, I was doing a lot of finance analysis. I was also doing clean energy fund building. I was also working with, um, you know, some PR and research, market research, you know, trying to work with companies in um, clean energy. Um, but then it just crystallized after, you know, kind of mucking around for a while that I really like building things. And so I founded my own, you know, I always like seeing startups um, grow into something bigger and knowing that I had a role in it. Um, and so I worked with, you know, with venture funds as well, trying to, you know, like inject cash into, you know, really promising idea at the seed, idea, the seed level or, you know, further down the road as well in, you know, series A, B, C. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes even to IPO, which is really great for a fund when uh, when, mm -hmm. when a company can IPO. But um, I just decided, you know, after a while that, um, you know, I needed to do my own thing. Um, and it was actually a really personal choice to um, found the company that I founded. It was uh, with a really, really good friend of mine. Um, and he, uh, we met at Stanford and he was the AI director at Twitter um, for a long time. Um, and so we, his, fought, uh, his mother um, had gone diagnosed with um, stage four lung cancer, um, pretty, um, you know, like it's now, it's now like four years ago, five, five years, six years, whatever, <laughs> whenever, that, whenever that was. Um, and my dad got um, diagnosed as well with uh, type B lymphoma. And so there are, um, it, so my dad's in Singapore and, and his mom was in um, France. And when they have yearly um, x-rays, mm -hmm. so you have these checks and all these like, you know, things where they do every year. And so they had all these x-rays done over the years. And how did they get to stage four without anybody catching it? And so we looked at the, the uh, you know, the past um, x-rays and everything and then showed them to radiologists that were friends of ours. And they said like, yeah, this is, could, you know, there was definitely something, could, you can't like confirm it, but it was something that should have been looked at more years ago. <clears throat> so his mother, um, his mother passed um, and my dad is still living, thank goodness. Um, but, um, you know, we, we said like, why don't we build something? Because we, we thought we wanted to, we were saying we want to found a company together, but we weren't sure. We were like, oh, maybe something aviation, something drone, something blah, blah, blah. And like, so we didn't really have a good idea of what we wanted to do and along, you know, along those lines. Um, and so, um, when his mother um, passed away, it just kind of was like we need to do something to you know help the situation, um, and so um, our, the company that we founded was an AI medical imaging company, um, and um, it was very much out of you know my wheelhouse to work in healthcare. <laughs> so I uh, never worked in healthcare before, and uh, I, I can see why people really hate it <laughs> because it's very bureaucratic. It's it's almost like the defense, you know, like because I worked in energy and defense and like aviation, aerospace type industries before. But it's whenever you have some, you know, things that have to do with regulations, whatever. You know, so healthcare is like way up there, and then um, aviation is also kind of way up there in a different mm -hmm. sense. Um, so I think with, um, so it was just a very rocky beginning trying to figure out what we were trying to do um, because most people, you know, why don't you start a tech company and like do this app or something or whatever, mm -hmm. and then with our you know, with our backgrounds, we could probably get funding really easily or something. It took us a long time to get any kind of funding. <laughs> people like you guys know nothing about healthcare. <laughs> you know, you don't know the people who work in the hospitals. You don't know the people, you know, so we had to kind of just you know, crawl our way mm -hmm. through it. And like, eventually we did get um, our first deployments in Michigan and urgent care, which is very much needed because, um, you know, they need help with read because you don't actually don't need to um, legally. It's not required for any urgent uh, any doctor to have an x-ray be read by a radiologist. You can so your x-rays can be read by, you know, like a physician's assistant or it, there's nothing that says that a radiologist has to read it. And so you could just go in there with, um, you know, urgent care with like a broken arm. And then they're, you know, they'll be like, oh yeah, we see that, uh, we see that there's this a crack here, but then they don't see it as a nodule somewhere because that's not what they're looking for, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so our um, software helps to, um, you know, mitigate that kind of, you know, like that situation a little bit and say, oh, hey, maybe you missed something. Maybe mm -hmm. you can look at it again because you're not as trained as radiologists. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, and so then we had deployments in Singapore as well. Um, um, you know, obviously Singapore because I'm from Singapore, so I basically used all the connections I had to try and get into the hospitals there. And we did get a deployment in Singapore General Hospital, and that's one of the you know, seven largest hospitals in the world. Um, and so that helped us, you know, really get a little bit more, um, you know, I guess, prestige, I, you know, <laughs> so that people would actually want to use our software after that. So, yeah, so that helped a little bit. And what has been the reception to the software? How has it? How has the, it's been? It's really, it's been really, really great. So the company. Um, so I'm no longer, um, I'm no longer active, but I've sold, I've sold my shares in that and everything. Um, and it's in, it's in its uh, third round of funding now, and so doing really well. I think it's more than 100 deployments in the world. Um, I think it's mostly focusing more on the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious at that at all of the things you've done, and you had all these kind of ideas for businesses. You had the flight, you had wine. So how how did it end up being wine? How, how did you come back to wine, and 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 how did you end up? You mentioned Oregon wine being a draw. Mm -hmm. What about Oregon itself was a draw? Yeah, it's uh, so I you know was living in New York. I, I, I've lived in New York, San Francisco, um, Raleigh, North Carolina. I've lived in France. I've lived in Singapore, and you know I've visited Portland a few times. I did a little Seattle to Portland bike ride. I flew up here a few times in my plane, um, and I really really liked it. Um, but really, it was just one of those things that I had you know I sold my shares in my company. I was really burned out. I would say you know I've been tra I travel once every three weeks to Singapore, and I don't know if you know, but it's a 20-hour <laughs> flight, um, and then I'd be completely you know, roll out of the plane into a meeting, and then come back, and so I was just really, really burned out. Um, and remember, I, I think I was saying earlier that, you know, the past few years, it's just been in my life a big refocusing mm -hmm. on what I really like to do and what makes me happy versus, um, you know, what I thought I needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so. I had this time and I was just, you know, I, I want to go to Oregon and figure out what to do there. Mm -hmm. So I moved here <laughs> and then decided quickly um, that, you know, I want to do something with wine, but not, not yet purchase land and try and grow grapes yet. <laughs> um, but maybe, you know, start with a bar because I wanted a bar and I wanted a, um, a kind of wine program where I would, where I, which I would be happy with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not to say that the other, every, everywhere else is amazing, by the way. <laughs> it's just like not what I wanted. I want a bunch of flights. I wanted people to be able to come in, no pretensions, that kind of thing, and try as many wines as they could. Um, you know, introduce people to French wines a little bit more deeply than you know maybe what they have had been experiencing. Um, you know, flights from all around the world. I'm a big fan of New Zealand wines as well, you know, things like that. So, and above all, just to have a lot of choice and a lot of freedom in you know, saying that I don't like that, but I like this, mm -hmm. or, you know, versus like some places like it's kind of a little bit snotty. I'm not saying here, but uh, when I lived in New York, there are definitely places where they're like, oh, you like that, you know. <laughs> and so, um, so I, and I'm like, I don't know, sometimes I, I want my two buck chuck, you know, sometimes it, it, that's, a, that's a wine for, well, maybe not that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but everybody has their own taste and there should be no pretension or no, you know, so, and I think that Oregon kind of, the people in Oregon especially, I think that that's their mentality here too. There's no like, you must like this or you, you know, um, obviously there's a tendency in this part in the Willamette to do, you know, Pinots, but you go to Southern Oregon, you have so many different choices there as well. So, yeah. So when you when you moved to Oregon, uh, how long before you started the project? And, and and tell me about the kind of the the how it started, how you chose the space, how you chose mm -hmm. the, all, all the things. Yeah. So it was um, so it, we chose the space. I, I think in two thousand and nineteen. So and then it was it used to be a leather goods store or like um, they sold cowboy boots and something like that um, called Half Pint um, and so it, it um, Stem Wine Bar is on North Mississippi Avenue, really vibrant street. Um, for those who don't know, it, lots of cafes, bars, restaurants, amazing retail shops as well. Um, and so it was just one of those. I, I think I went to see the space. The landlord um, very cleverly decided to um, pick the viewing day to be the day where the street fair was ha was happening. And so I went there, it was so crowded. I was just like, oh my God, like <laughs> this place is amazing. And like, so <laughs> it's gonna be like this all the time. So, so that's, and then he charged premium, of course. Cause I, you know, <laughs> so we got this space and had to convert it from a retail to a restaurant, which I not 
ever having done this before, didn't realize how difficult this would be. <laughs> but yeah, so we had to do that co-conversion with Portland, especially the city of Portland. It's um, that's a lot of stuff that needs to you have to turn a lot of kind of wheels to get things done um, when it comes to permitting or whatnot. Um, and that was and that was before the pandemic. Now it's even worse because we're actually opening up a second location. Um, pretty soon in April. Um, but anyway, so it was just, uh, it felt like it was meant to be. Um, and then the construction had happened and I was like, okay, maybe it's not meant to be. <laughs> but um, we've kind of powered through it. Um, and then um, I was you know, really excited. It's like my first wine, it's like my passion, you know, that kind of thing. I chose and I thought an amazing wine list. Um, and um, you know, it's all like ready to like sample people on flights and all of that, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, so then we opened our doors in February of mm -hmm. 2020, um, and that, of course, as you know, was um, one month before the pandemic, and so that kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> I was like, this pandemic thing must it'll probably last two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And so and it didn't. It lasted a lot longer, and still lasting um and so i think um it was very very disheartening you know, being, you know but one thing that i have learned from my years of working in silicon valley is to do things online and so the first thing we, i mean the day we had to shut our doors is the day i put everything online for deliveries and for um you know tastings and whatnot mm -hmm. whatever it is so we um we got our first deliveries i think the second day that we um, second day of the pandemic and then so I became a delivery driver at that point um, we did this whole thing where it was 30 mile radius of Portland at first and then it became 50 and then and then <laughs> I was like I'll do anything to save this bar right um, and so so um, yeah and then people got their pandemic money so I was driving out to Salem to to deliver Chardonnay flights, like bottles of Chardonnay, like that was about a flight, it would be like four bottles of Chardonnay, <laughs> you know, and, and like I was, you know, it was pretty crazy. We got like 20, 30 deliveries a day sometimes. And then I decided to stop the whole 50 mile thing because that was a little bit aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> and it was only two of us um, kind of just driving and doing that. And then we were allowed to reopen and then I was like, I'm going to save money. I'm going to also serve and then also drive. And then that was probably not the most sustainable thing to do. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, it worked in the, it worked out and then we started doing virtual tastings. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of corporate um, clients as well as families and smaller groups. Um, we did in-person tastings when, um, we were allowed to open up again so those were really fun um yeah so it just became you know we met people from new york who we would never meet otherwise or companies and you know based in san francisco who you know had us do their virtual tastings that kind of thing so how did you find a, a clientele given that you'd only been able to be open for like a month before you shut down how did people find you and how did you find how, how did you kind of find your way into into their business um if uh, if you're talking about the corporate clients it was you know just really advertising and also I think we were actually the first few we got ourselves on different platforms um, I you know I put us on Airbnb as well so they have virtual experiences mm. and we also have Airbnb in bar tastings as well and then we have our own ones which do, you don't have to go through Airbnb to do um, but it was just kind of really I cold pitched a bunch of people I'll get like find out who these um, HR people were at different um, you know places and kind of used you know, some of the sales and marketing stuff from that I know, knew from before and kind of cold pitched a bunch of people <laughs> and so you know obviously out of a thousand cold pitches you're gonna get like you know three that's good enough because like your email if you can set up a program it's going to send out a thousand emails and no problem so <laughs> so yeah so and then we had built um, a really good um, mailing list as well from just in bar customers even the one month that we were you know instagram followers and things like mm -hmm. that and that really really helped too i think mm -hmm. um and a word of mouth because you know we had a tasting with nike it was because somebody had come to the bar before and then told you know her friend who worked mm -hmm. at nike as well and blah blah you know so, it, so that's basically how it happened and the one the one tasting I, I was a little bit unsure how we got that one but i eventually figured it out um it was in um, it was a virtual tasting in new york and we had one of the real housewives um, um, who was um, <laughs> our, and she, Ebony, oh, Ebony, Ebony. Um, I, I don't follow the real housewives. <laughs> and so, but um, she was the host of it. And it was actually for a nonprofit um, that works with survivors of, um, you know, domestic violence mm -hmm. and um, that kind of thing. And so it's a nonprofit. And so she was the host. And they were, it was this big event. They had to um, kind of thank all their sponsors and whatever. And so, 
But yeah, that was pretty hilarious. We like showed up, there was like a production team on like, you know, it's like me and my wine tasting manager and we're, and we're like, like, what is happening here? You know, <laughs> but, <laughs> she was really great. Um, Ebony was really great. She likes to drink too, so <laughs> it worked out. That's a lot of very interesting I guess, I mean, to, to overuse a word that was a 2020 word, pivots, a lot of interesting pivots in, in a quick time. Mm -hmm. Tell me about um, sort of building your team through that and, and, and mm -hmm. keeping keeping them working as well and figuring out how to translate transition their skills. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the team, we still have, like, um, the original members um, of their of the bar, the serving team, um, and driving, who have become now interior designers, and but they still work in with the bar in some capacity. Um, and so building the team was um, really, really interesting because I've never built a team in the service industry before. Mm -hmm. um, I've built lots of other teams before, but. You know, and I, I was just, you know, I had no idea, you know, what it was, but I knew that I needed, I wanted everybody to feel valued, mm -hmm. um, and I wanted everybody to feel like they had a say in everything, and to participate in tastings, and to, you know, if they don't like this wine, why, you know, like, what do you like, you know, and mm -hmm. so bring in their suggestions as well. So everybody has a pretty big um, say in, you know, wine list, uh, you know, that's like a big veto from somebody, anyone, then it kind of that's it, and we're not, we're not gonna serve that, you know? Um, we're actually gonna be doing our, um, our STEM holiday party, I guess it's not, because <laughs> it's February now, but um, we're gonna um, stay overnight in McMinnville in the hotel, and then we're gonna, the day we're gonna just do a bunch of wine tastings around here. And that's what we did um, last year as well, so. Um, yeah, so it's been really difficult, obviously, um, with the service industry and trying to hire people lately. Um, but I think it's starting to pick up a little bit again. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we've never really, you know, because then I would just step in to serve or somebody else would step in to serve or whatever. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to fly, which kind of suck. But <laughs> but yeah, it hasn't been too, um, yeah, I, I've heard of places with much worse situations than us. Um, so the team got very, very close during the pandemic. I mean, um, for some strange reason, most of us just live like on the same block by the bar <laughs> we, we literally had two um two team members um live in the building next to the bar <laughs> so it was this joke that we just, just hire from that building <laughs> it's not true but but it, it seemed like it and so then the team became really really close because everything was shut at the time mm -hmm. and then when we weren't shut it would be like outdoors only and so you know so the team would kind of just gather it became a very you know almost like a family at the time and obviously now you know things have opened up a little bit mm -hmm. you know quite a bit more and it's becoming transitioning more into a regular kind of restaurant business versus delivery like what we um were doing before so the dynamics are changing as they you know always do but yeah we have seen for example our um, ex-manager um of the bar she um, transitioned to an events management role in the bar because i was like let's do events like let's have you know you know female winemakers come into a women wine power flight or something you know that kind of thing and um and then that's eventually what she wants to work as you know and then you know our wine manager was in real estate before and you know so i i love being able to kind of introduce wine to different people and have them you know see where it takes them because you know you know she would have ended up selling houses which is probably not a bad thing <laughs> in itself but um but now she's you know she manages the wine list so yeah. Something somewhat more exciting about that, I think. I, I think so, personally. <laughs> Money-wise, I'm not so sure, but you know. <laughs> when it comes to the, the, the wine list, you mentioned kind of, you obviously have your, your preferences and you mm -hmm. have your kind of the mission of, of French wines and Oregon wines, but you also mentioned kind of a democratic process there. Mm -hmm. would have. So yeah. tell, tell me about how the wine list gets built and, and how often is it being changed? So right now, we're actually changing it every um, two to three weeks or so. Um, which is a little bit more um, often than I think it should because it's really difficult to keep a sustain, you know, kind of sense of sustainability mm -hmm. when you have a wine list that changes that often. Um, but um, we're just trying to actually find our sweet spot right now because we, you know, are still kind of transitioning from that whole delivery mindset. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been a while now, but then there was this like big rush of everybody coming in, and so then it was summertime, and then like all the rosés and all of that stuff, and. Then winter has been a pretty rough time, I think, for most restaurants and um, bars this year. Last year, we just ended up delivering a lot, so it was, um, but this year has been pretty rough. Um, 
And so it's trying to like hit that sweet spot of what everybody like, you know, has an idea of what they like and what to bring into the bar. But at the same time, you know, is it something that will be sold? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think just trying to figure that out has been a process. But you're right, yeah, a, the, a lot of people have different opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think one of the biggest jokes, or not joke, it really it is just like, you know, I, I, I share very similar tastes with um, our wine manager. Um, our general manager is the complete opposite of us. And so, you know, so I'm just like, try some of her, the wine she's drinking. I'm just like, ugh. But, <laughs> but, then, but then I recognize it's me, it's not the wine. And you know, many people will like her kind, the wines that she picks. So that's how it is. <laughs> why, why the name Stem? Um, that's, that's a little bit of a long story, actually. <laughs> what we're here for. We opened a wine bar um, um, as 45 North Wine Bar, uh, not as STEM. And um, so February 2020, 45 North Wine Bar, and then their company, the LLC name is Veritas Wines, but that's not important. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we, have, we had that name, and I, I thought it was a great name, and, you know, but people started, and especially our logo too, it was like a globe, and then with the latitude line. But um, people started mentioning to us that when you walk by the bar, especially when we were shut during the pandemic, that they thought it was some kind of travel store or something. <laughs> <laughs> Because like it said 45 North, the words, but not wine bar on the. So it's like 45 North, and then like this like globe thing. And so unless you walk in, and and it's a pretty nice bar. Um, and really like from you know, the lights when it's the bar's lit all the time, so you can actually know it's a bar, but you have to kind of walk up to it. Um, so that was one of the reasons why we decided to go through a name change. Another reason was um, we actually got a, um, a cease and desist letter from um, North 45 Pub. And they said that, um, and that's absolutely not the reason why we decided to um, stop being 45 North Wine Bar, but um, they sent this letter from their lawyers um, and in the middle of the pandemic, like June of 2020, June or July. Um, and it's a big, it's a, I think they have like six different, uh, it's a chain, they have six different pubs and restaurants or whatever. Um, and it, they said, you, um, you know, this is infringing on our trademark or whatever. And uh, you know you need to cease and desist. And like um, so, I showed it to the to uh, the manager, and she was so scared. I was just like, I'm sorry, I've worked in tech and whatever. Like, I had like, and I also have a lot of lawyers. And so like, like cease, you get cease and desist like all the time. It's meant to scare you, mm -hmm. especially since they think this is like some mom and pop. You know, they have no, no idea. So I'm just like, so I sent them, I sent it to my lawyers the letter because I was irritated um, and, then, and then they um, my lawyer said like that's a design mark not a trademark so the the logo itself was the was what they had designed and that was what was protected not the words 45 North because you, you cannot legally trademark a location mm -hmm. and that's the meaning of that mm -hmm. and also they were using uh, reasons like people confuse your pub with our bar your bar with our pub and I was like how is that even a thing like you're a pub <laughs> you don't even have wines you have like three wines but anyway so at the end of the day like um, we so they my lawyer sent back a letter and uh, you know we won I guess um, and that they never sent anything back after that but it kind of left a sour taste in my you know, in my mouth, and I was just like, and also that whole thing where people thought we were a travel store, um, and so, <laughs> so I decided to go through a name change, um, and then I, how I did that was I got a bunch of people together, um, and we did like a branding exercise, um, you know, with a lot of wine and drinks, um, and sat around a fire, um, and, and the people who came up with the name STEM were people who don't um, drink wine that much, they drink beer normally. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I had some really terrible suggestions and ideas that I thought were great, but, you know, they weren't. Um, and <laughs> so we just kind of went around the whole list, and then I looked at Sam, and I was like, that's a perfect name um, for their bar, and everybody kind of agreed. So that's the name that we, we chose. <laughs> and then also, you know, STEM is also science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, it's like kind of a thing, you know, so. Yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, though, that you came to a name that you like. I mean, you, you found something that you like, and it kind of works multiple ways. It, so. Yeah, it's actually really interesting, because I would not have thought that, you know, just doing a branding, you don't know how many branding exercises I've been part of in my life, um, where you just sit around, and then for some company that's trying to change its image or whatever, and then, 
you come up with your, your perspective and then nothing changes or it's something that's terrible. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I was like, okay, let me try this on my own thing and see what happens. And yeah, it worked out really well. <laughs> so thank you, North 45 Pub. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tell me about your, your clientele now, especially now that you're, that you're open again. Um, what, what have you found brings people to oh. STEM? And what, what are they looking mm -hmm. for from you? And, and what, have the, what have you kind of evolved for or learned from, from them in the, in the past couple of years? Yeah, no, I've learned a lot from the people who, um, who've come into the bar. I want to say that one of our flights um, that we uh, had started in the beginning was because of um, somebody came into the bar um, and he really liked Cap Franc, and so do I, but I just didn't think that people would go for a Cap Franc only flight. Mm -hmm. and I was totally wrong. <laughs> so um, the clientele that comes in, up, um, so it's uh, mostly from people from Portland. Sometimes we have you know tourists, and by the pandemic, it's been uh, you know mostly Portland people mm -hmm. or locals and things like that. Um, they're very very passionate about wine, um, <laughs> and uh, if they don't know a lot about it, they definitely love drinking it. Um, <laughs> so we have a lot of young people, but also a lot of uh, you know more older you know refined tastes as well. So that's why our wine list has expanded and grown. It started with. Um, you know, 50 wines by a 40, a really large, you know, 45 wines by a glass. Then it like expanded because we we're getting people who wanted to taste the Margot, the you know 2002 Margot versus, you know, somebody who wanted mimosas. You know, so um, so then we expanded from 45 to 50 to 100. Then at one point we had like almost like 200 wines by the glass, and then that became a little bit cray cray. <laughs> I was like, nope, we can't do that. Not sustainable. We use the Caravan system and we also Argon um, mm -hmm. for, the, for the house wines. And so that helps a little bit, but you, know, you can imagine what the kitchen looked like. We stopped serving food during the pandemic. Um, so we only had like cheese plates and that kind of thing, um, nuts, um, chocolates, um, versus having an actual kitchen, which we used before. And so that became a storage place for bottles of wine, literally. And so now it's gone back to more like 50. <laughs> it's a little bit more, um, it's, I think, a little bit easier to digest. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, but we've learned so much from um, the people who've come into the bar, like, oh, have you tried this you know, varietal? Like, oh, this is little winery here that's really amazing. You know, or or they or they'll tell us some random fact about you know the wines that we didn't even know ourselves. Um, yeah, and I met people from California that you know been to the same wineries I've been to, mm -hmm. the, that kind of thing. Used mm -hmm. to fly a plane up to to Napa and like some from from the Bay Area. It's not far at all. It's literally the Bay Area. <laughs> like, so yeah, it's yeah, it's been really really great. And really during yeah, I met many friends. Um, I have many friends now um, from who. You know, our customers of the bar used to be customers and moved away or whatever. But yeah, I think the whole pandemic thing really brought out a lot of um, people coming and then just kind of being open about mm -hmm. you know who they are and you know how to help. And really, they they really helped us a lot. You know, they knew we were going through a tough time. They you know bought wine, <laughs> so so everybody wins. You know? <laughs> How, what do you feel like your role is in terms of education of wine? Do you have a lot of demand to, to, for people to know more about wine mm -hmm. or wineries or winemaking? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. My role is uh, so I still conduct some um, some of the wine tastings that mm -hmm. we do. Um, so the virtual tastings have dropped up a little bit, but we we have we just had like a few different in inquiries about more virtual tastings coming up. Um, so my role, I you know. You know, I you know, although I think I was a really amazing delivery driver, um, <laughs> who else would go to Salem? <laughs> um, so even though I think I was really kicking ass there, <laughs> but um, I think yeah, it really is just really imparting a love for it, and you know what I know about wines, mm -hmm. which is more on the tasting side right now. Even though I have done harvest and all, of that, I can talk about that a little bit. But um, I have my psalms, you know, certification and all of that stuff. And it's just like people want to, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions as well. And so just kind of like letting that go a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, helping them to understand that, you know, this is not, you know, it's not, there's no pretension here, but this is why we do swallow it, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Not they say like, oh, why do you have your pinky out? You know, like, you know, stuff like that. And just, you know, helping people to understand wine a little bit better. And like maybe one day they'll, they'll love it as much as I do. Or if they really love it, then, you know, let's like talk more. And I can learn from them too. So... <laughs> So yeah, it's always been a, a real kind of fun. The, our virtual tastings are really, really fun. <laughs> so.
Well, how, for, so logistically for those, you, you had to deliver all the, all those wines and then, and then you talk about them. Yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah, so if it's a local Portland um, tasting, then, uh, then we will um, set up the delivery of the, on the day off. Um, and so then we'll have those wines be brought to their homes and then, then we do the tasting and we go through the, you know, as they are sitting in their homes or whatever, mm -hmm. then here's the first wine, second wine, time, let's talk about it, blah, blah, blah. Um, if it's some, if it's like um, some place in California, then we have to ship the wines out, mm -hmm. um, and then so we are on it. We put in all little things. It was pretty disastrous the first time we tried it because we had never done this before. <laughs> um, we <laughs> we had a group of five, and they were so disappointed because everything looked really bad because we didn't know how to package anything, and then like some broke. So I'm like, it was yeah. So then we learned from that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of um, hiccups, um, but <laughs> yeah, so it worked out in the end. <laughs> With the, with the virtual tastings especially, how do you feel the connection goes? Do you feel it's similar to in-person or what are, the, what are the gaps? It's definitely um, different because the virtual tastings tend, even though we've had families as well where people know each other, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times it, it's like we've had lawyer groups, you know, and um, accountants like KPMG has done virtual tastings of us. And it's not like a team building thing. Um, it's actually, I wouldn't say that it's, it's um, not as warm because you know people you know these people are, this is a fun time for them they're like you know here we get to drink wine instead of going you know doing work <laughs> um it's just been uh, i think but it is much more fun personally for me when you have people come in and you can actually like interact with them um, i tend to do better with people in person than zooms or what, you know so um but at the same time i wouldn't say that the experience is any you know we've had some really great um fun times with um with some of the online groups. Our first online um, tasting was with the women in construction um, <laughs> group. Um, and it was so fun. They we had a flight that was called Women Wine Power. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted specifically to do, to like have the tasting be around that flight. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really fun. And they, they really showed up pretty drunk because it was after their, it was, they were having conference. And so they were drunk by the time they showed up. So I'm not sure what they learned. Probably not much. <laughs> but, but, but they had fun. They had fun, and we've had uh, they uh, we're doing a repeat um, with some of the people who were at the, and this time they promised not to. Get, <laughs> they weren't that drunk, <laughs> but they were having, they had a really great time. I must say, it's almost like you feel like you need to keep up or somehow, yeah, but you can't. <laughs> you mentioned that a uh, specific tasting women women and wine. Have you have you have other thematic tastings when you when mm -hmm. you design those? What and how do you come up with the themes? Um, women Wine Power is very, it's very close to me just because obviously I'm a woman and like, um, like aviation, so uh, female winemakers, I think about 4 or 5% of actual winemakers. Um, so, you know, aviation, same things, like 5% of pilots are women. And so it's, um, and yet I don't see men being better pilots than women, even though that's this whole misconception that they are. And I definitely don't see male winemakers being better than they might have had a head start in, because they started earlier or something. Mm -hmm. But um, so, so I wanted to do that. And we did it to coincide with, the, with Women's History Month, which is coming up as well. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll be doing more specials around that. Um, and we had um, we had also had a, a flight that focused on you know BIPOC um, mm -hmm. community and so winemakers that you know were Asian American or just Asian or you know African American or you know Hispanic as well and so um, just trying to like highlight their different you know diversity that you can have in winemaking and not focus on this is the most expensive you know DLC you know <laughs> you know which is always great but <laughs> at the same time there's so many new things that are coming out that you know that have so much potential as well so so let's talk about the, the future a little bit you mentioned a new location opening up mm -hmm. tell, us, tell us more about that so it's going to be um, so it's a restaurant and not a wine bar and but it's going so we have their menu all um, planned out and I am really excited about the wines that um, I've already picked uh, and still going to pick more that can kind of pair with that um, so in terms of their um, the wine list it's not going to be as flight heavy or as by the glass heavy as you know the wine bar itself for obvious mm -hmm. reasons mm -hmm. um, but we'll have um, a lot of different kind of choices maybe and it's uh, going to be a full bar so we'll have like champagne cocktails maybe that can you know kind of be aperitives for people 
um, and then also figure out a way to really pair the kinds of bottles that we have with the with the meals. And if we can get a tasting menu out, then I think we could we could really have some fun there <laughs> with the wine. So, what prompted the second location? Hmm. I think I was just in my building mode. <laughs> you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier that I like building things, whether it's companies or the idea or, you know, from something from scratch. And, and so I, you know, that's Stem Wine Bar. And then we were in the middle of the pandemic. I was just like, let's, oh, let's, let's, let's expand. You know, I never said I was smart. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, so, so that's, that's what prompted it. I think I just wanted to see, you know, it go in a different direction. Because, mm -hmm. you know, just the wine bars, you know, it's basically doing what I have wanted. You know, I, I see it growing still and I really love it and seeing how it's evolving. But let's like see now with a restaurant, like with wine, like how we can really take it one step, even, you know, even one step further, so. <laughs> so with, with STEM itself or with, with both locations, uh, coming out of the pandemic hopefully at some point here <laughs> tell me what you're looking for in the future do you have a goal in mind for sort of what it will look like in its finished stage or will it kind of always be evolving i think it'll always be evolving that's the one thing i can say about my life it hasn't really gone the way i thought it would have when i <laughs> so that being said i'm just gonna let, yeah, I have no, um, I used to be very, resi not resistant to change, but you know, not love it so much because, you know, I had this idea of where things needed to go and then I would like really take me a long time to kind of be flexible and adjust to it. Um, and now I'm just, that's just whatever. <laughs> if anything has taught us for the past two years, you really kind of rely on a lot of, you know, what used to be the these shining stars or true enough or whatever. Plus, there's no such thing as true enough what is language what is the meaning what is you know we can go and so um yeah it's always going to be evolving mm -hmm. all i know is that i love building things i love like sharing you know my ideas of wine and sharing my love of wine with people and love meeting the people that you know i'm learning all want to learn about it all can have something to teach me <laughs> so it's uh so i know that's the one thing that i want to keep um what whatever you know wherever we go with this mm -hmm. so you mentioned earlier, hinted, hinted earlier at potentially growing, making wine down the road. To tell me more about that. Do you is that still something? Oh, it's going to be my garage. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> backyard, vineyard, garage. Oh wine yeah, no, garagist. I mean, like the you know epitome of like, no. It, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it might be down the road. But once again, I don't know if that will happen. Um, I haven't been as attracted to the growers you know, to that kind of growing part of wine as much. I think mostly because I like to fangle over all the different winemakers that I love so much. They're like, I'm just, I don't want to make my own wine. I just want to like <laughs> admire everybody else. <laughs> but, um, but we'll see, it is something that's in the back of my mind at some point. Um, but we'll just get this restaurant out of the way first and see how that goes after. <laughs> But anything else for the future, wine-related or otherwise? Anything, any other projects you have coming up? Um, so this is not wine-related at all. Um, so I'm doing a lot of aerobatics and flying. Com I'm going to be flying competitions for aerobatics. Um, so that's Aer the aerobatics being aero acrobatics. Yeah, aerobatics. Okay. Um, so I'm a member of the International Aerobatic Club. The plane that I um, bought this uh, last year um, is a fully acrobatic plane, um, inverted fuel tank, um, so we can do bunch of fun stuff in it so um yeah so i'm really really excited about all of that i you know i was starting to click in my mind like because i'd done this a long time ago and then i stopped yeah i don't know if i told you but i actually stopped flying really like for a long time i mean i would do like once in a year or something mm -hmm. but um it's only with the pandemic that i started flying again um as recently as last july actually and then like really threw myself into it <laughs> um, and so um so then i you know with this plane i'm just really really enjoying myself and just you know, um, and met a lot of great people as well all who also like wine too mm -hmm. um, one of the greatest um, um, pilots in the world patty wagstaff over in florida um, she's been like world champion of aerobatics you know three-time world champion you know everything can think of and just like amazing she wants to open a wine bar in <laughs> in st augustine florida so i'm like i could help you there i can't help you to find because you're better than me but <laughs> yeah so so tell, so tell me more about the aer so is it with aerobatics you, you you train and then you compete there are mm -hmm. competitions around the world how do you uh, what do you what, what do you do what, what, what are like the tricks you do or what, what is the kind of um, the goal so uh, so yeah before before you go 
across a bunch of competitions in the U.S. as well. So most people start out by doing um, sequences here in in the U.S. before they graduate to international. Because it's really hard to um, aerobatic planes are very hard to fly internationally. So you have to like kind of get you know kind of get a, somebody there to land you a plane or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, so the, it's called a sequence. So uh, for that, basically two routes you can go if you're going to be an aerobatic pilot. You can um, most people will start with the competition route. Right, and then they might go to air shows after that. Um, but some people like just do air shows from the beginning or whatever if they're really, really good at them or something. Or if you're from the military, which is a different kind of flying. People think that military means um, aerobatics, actually, different kind of um, flight profiles. Um, there's some similarities, but mm -hmm. it's not the same. Um, so there, so how it works is that there are contests, regional contests that are organized by the IAC, the US um, branch of the IAC. Um, and the president of the IAC right now in the US actually lives in Corvallis in Oregon. And so that's like a little community down there where they're like kind of, <laughs> and then up here in, well, I fly out Aurora. Um, and so there's just like two of us who in Aurora who <laughs> have aerobatic planes and who fly out of Aurora. Um, and so that's a sequence and the different categories of competition, like with any, with, you know, different mm -hmm. sports. Um, so there's like the primary sequence and then there is, and, and as you get to the highest um, categories, you either do, you have to do the known sequence, which they publish, and then there's also that, you design your own as well. And um, as you get higher and higher in the categories, your um, altitude gets lower and lower. So, um, so you fly in what they call a box, <laughs> so it's about thousand meters by it's not about it is a thousand meters by thousand meters and it's marked okay. and then there's a runway and it's you know you get a waiver from the FAA that day to fly over the airport because you're not supposed to do that everybody's over an airport normally but anyway so so on the competition day um, so you're if you are going to be flying um, primary then you start up at a higher level and then as you go to all the way down to you know intermediate advanced you know and then unlimited you're down to the ground. Like Patty, she has a FA waiver to zero, mm. to down to zero. <laughs> so she can fly, you know. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's true skill. Uh, it's, people think that it's stunts. It's really not stunts. So, um, um, so a typical sequence would be you start with, a, so you have to keep within that thousand mm -hmm. by meter, thousand meter. So it means that you have to reverse course. And so the, what you're doing in your sequence will put you, uh, you know, like should bring you up again or down again so that you're still within that pocket and then, and then also bring you around and bring it so that you don't um, go out of it. And it still takes a lot of skill to figure that out though, because thousand by thousand meters is not that big no. in an airplane. <laughs> so you could start with a loop and then, um, and then if you're going to be, then you might spin it down and you need to go back up again. So you might do an immel run, and then, which is a, kind of like a half loop and then you roll over because you're inverted at the point, so you roll upright and you're changing direction as well at that time. So yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, you should come. Yeah, I, 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 I brought up quite a few people from the wine bar. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, all the all the walls colliding. And <laughs> not in a bad way, not in a bad collision. Sure, sure. <laughs> Finding people who have similar interests as you that you weren't, you weren't expecting. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to broaden out a little bit, talk about the industry in general now a little bit. Obviously, mm -hmm. you had, you came to Oregon because of Oregon wine and you were intrigued. So tell me about when you got here, kind of your first impressions of the industry as you got to know the people and the, and the wines here a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and what, if anything, has changed in the time you've been here? Um, you know, when I first got here, the people I, I didn't really know that many people because um, I never worked in wine before in, you know, in Oregon or the U.S. Um, and so I got to know distributors and they were all very friendly <laughs> and very nice people. Um, so that worked out. But then um, what really, I think, clarify a lot of things for me and like really made me happy that I chose in Oregon as um, a place to kind of set up shop so to speak mm -hmm. literally um, was uh, the fact that during the pandemic like I've never seen a more collaborative and more like open and just you know a society that really wants to to help um, it's been you know and it's not it's not limited to wine um, but it a big you know a lot of education a lot of people just you know like distributors saying like we want to help you out because you're you know that kind of thing um, and winemakers just, you know, like um, Brianne drove her wine over from, you know, from Newburgh to, to Portland. Some, yeah, it was her, 
day wines or whatever mm -hmm, it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she she drove it up, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And you know, and she was struggling too at that time. I mean, we didn't know it was like April of 2020, right? <laughs> you know, so um, so yeah, such a collaborative society and, and you know, just a community that is. I mean, it really embodies the word community I think <laughs> so that's what I really really like about it um, have I worked in other wine communities in the US no so I don't know if like everybody was kind of all like that but, but I don't think so I, I somehow think it's unique to Oregon mm -hmm. um, so I could be wrong again <laughs> wouldn't be the first time we've heard that so it doesn't, doesn't surprise me mm -hmm. what about the wines themselves how have how have they changed and evolved since you started drinking Oregon wines? how have the Oregon wines mm -hmm. changed well, I think the fires, um, well, just because by the nature of um, Pinot being something that you drink, you know, younger mm -hmm. versus like, um, you know, like a Bordeaux or whatever, I had a chance to taste um, and drink a lot of the 2020s. Um, you know, I'm definitely drunk some, a bunch of rosé from 2020 just because of the fires and everything. I think it shows that, um, you know, the ability of winemakers to really adapt to situations that are less than ideal. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, I did recently taste one wine that had a little bit more than it should have of smoked tainta <laughs> in it, but it's just like, they, they went for it, they, tr they still tried to do red, you know, mm -hmm. go for you know, like, power to you, um, but I think it shows that that's always going to be something. If it's not a pandemic, if it's not the shortage or whatever it is that we're facing here now, if it's not um, fires, if it's not winter ice storms, it's going to be something, <laughs> you know, so it's a matter of like adapting to that. I mean, one parallel I can bring up is that with Bordeaux, for example, um, the weather, oh, climate change and everything, um, they've started to grow a lot more Merlot on the left bank, uh, or to use that a lot more than they normally do. So left bank in Bordeaux um, is typically um, cab soft heavy, mm -hmm. almost always. And yet you have, you know, wines now that have always been left bank and are now, you know, 70% Merlot, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For me, anyway. <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just kind of figuring out how to adapt to it. And like, it doesn't mean your wine is worse. It means it has a different character. And that's, a, that's the nature of wine. It's a living thing. I mean, what is that phrase that everybody always says? I know <laughs> wine is living, blah, blah. <laughs> exactly, so. Mm -hmm. What about for the, for the future of Oregon, for the wines and for the industry? What, what do you see coming down the road? I see a lot more just because the um, community is so open and so inclusive. Um, you know, I talk a little bit about diversity and all of that. I think I see a lot more coming in um, of, you know, people who might never have gone and started in wine before having an opportunity because they've had it here or they've been really well received or anything like that. So I see a lot more diversity. I see a lot more interesting ideas, a, l a lot more um, interesting kinds of uh, you know, fermentation techniques maybe, or like what I have noticed, um, you know, and some, a lot of, you know, some winemakers tend to do a lot of, they don't grow the, if they don't grow the grapes together from all over, you see a lot of experimentations of different, I'm just like, oh, wow, that's kind of fun, right? <laughs> and that's the whole point of it. There's so many French people that move from, um, from France to, you know, to Oregon, so they could kind of experiment the Burgundian kind of climate, but experiment with the rules instead of having to follow the Burgundian rules, right? Burgundy, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do that, right? And it produces amazing wines, but doesn't give you a whole lot of room versus like here, you get to experiment and be creative. And so I think that's going to come to fruition and really change in the future for the better. There's obviously going to be some that fail, that are not good experiments, but, <laughs> but, um, but um, I, think, I think it'd be really, really interesting and fun to see what happens. So you obviously you've, you come into the wine industry from a very interesting background and a unique, unique to us background. We never heard anybody coming to wine quite so the way you did. Um, if you had to give someone advice for joining the wine industry, what would you tell them? I would tell them, try, uh, start with trying to understand what it is about the wine that you love. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things to love about wine um, and there's so many different routes and so many different ways you can work in wine or you know be in the wine industry. So is it do you love the history? Do you want to teach about it? Do you want to make it? Do you want to <laughs> bottle it? Do you want to, you know, do you want to become a sommelier? You know, there's just so many different ways that you can work with wine. Um, and so I think that, that you know, that'd be the first thing I would say to somebody, like understand which, you know, what is it that you love about wine? And then from there, we can, you know, maybe see where you would want to pursue that, so. 
All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover? No, no that's it. <laughs> we got it all. We got it all. Well, thank you so much for your time, for, for, for flying up here to see us today, and um, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.